Now, I believe I have shared with some of you that God has pressed on my heart to study John 17. Now, for several months now, I have been reading and studying the writing and commentary of the godly man. It has been a blessed journey for my own growth. So now I want to take this uh, opportunity to, to share with you what God has taught me. You know, reflecting on the profound significance that chapter 7 contains, considering the, the, the breadth, the lens, the height and depths of this chapter, one theologian once said, what penned down by the Apostle John, it is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's not just John 17. What precedes this grace pray is the greatest sermon preached by our Lord in the upper room. In every era, the content from John 13 to 17, these five chapters has been regarded as one of the most precious part of the Bible. They have been the meat the drink, the strength and comfort of all true believers. And as I dive into this chapter myself, I feel like I, will, I have plunged myself into the deepest sea. The subject is so vast. The gospel of Christ is so glorious. And my thoughts are so limited. And my preaching is so inadequate. Nevertheless, I humbly submit my message to you and I invite each of you to consider with me John 17. Now, before we do that, let's bow our head in praise. Oh Lord, um, as I just mentioned, this subject of John 17 is so vast. It breached the brains of mankind. And I know my weakness. My preaching is so inadequate and my thought is so limited. But that's okay. It is, a, it is fine for me to admit my weakness. Because only that you can strengthen me and enable me to preach your word with power. It is pointless for me to just hit every word without your spirit to move among us. At the same time, Lord, I do believe that Satan is also working at the same time. He's trying to pour in the cold water to quench our spirit. But my confidence is in you, Lord. You're pouring the oil onto us. So, Father, I pray that you will continue to kindle our passion to Christ for the glory of God. May this message exalt your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn to your Bible to John 17, verse 1. Now once you're there, I will read it to you. John 17, I'm going to preach one verse. Jesus spoke this thing and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that Son may glorify you. Now, before we dive into the detail of his prey, we should understand a little bit background about the contextual background. The reason our Lord started his prey 
to God audibly was because that was his intention. He wanted his disciple to hear every single word uttered from his mouth. Why? Because he knew that their heart was troubled. Now, if you read John 14, he begins by saying, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. And you can imagine why their heart was troubled. For the past three years, they have been sitting under the teaching of our Lord, witnessing miracles, developing an intimate relationship with him, rely upon him whenever they were in troubles. Now our Lord tells them he's about to leave. He looked at them and see their confusion and sadness. He read their minds like an open book. He understands their spirits and he comforts them. And then showing them, you know, this, this wonderful doctrine. And, and what is this wonderful doctrine? It is, it was about their position would not be any worse due to his departure. Instead, it was their advantage for he was going to prepare a place for them and send the Holy Spirit upon them. And he doesn't merely speak in the doctrine of truth. And stop there. The next thing he does is now praying for them, ensuring that even though he must leave them on here on earth, he commits them to the Father in prayer, that they may know they are never left alone, and in all circumstances he will continue to look after them. Now, brothers, brothers, sisters, just think about this. Consider the blessing that we receive after Christ's ascension. Peter cl- proclaimed that uh, in 2 Peter 1.3, all things that pertain life and godliness are given to us. Paul prayed to the Ephesians church in Ephesians chapter 1.19. They say, they will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the rich of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power. Now, if this is what believers ought to be, then why is that our life are often filled with anxiety and fear in our spiritual life? Why do we consider so little about the glory in eternity? Why do we fear apologetic being defeated by sin? You see, I'm convinced that much of our dissatisfactions, apathy, unhappiness in our spiritual lives turn from our failure to realize our privileged position in Christ. Now, please listen to this new covenant language from the apostles. Apostle John stated, For of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. That's John 1.16. Apostle Paul expressing Ephesians 1.5, We are adopted as sons. The author of the Hebrew said in chapter 4, 14 to 16, because we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace in the time of need. And today, this is what I'm going to proposing you, proposing to you to consider. 
our Christian life can be healthier, more vigorous, more worthy of our Lord's calling given our privileged position in Christ. Questions then arise, how do we accomplish that? How do we live our life? As Peter said, everything that pertains to life and godliness are given to us. Well, let me share with you my three points, giving our unique positions in Christ. Let us learn, number one, deepen our dependencies on God. Second, trust the sovereignty of God. Third, behold the glory of God in the plan of salvation. Now let's move on to the first point, to deepen our dependency on God. Now as you study the four gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, one thing that his disciples did not fully understand in the three years of Christ's ministry was the pray life of our Lord. Why he always want to find a time in prayer? Now, Scripture tells us it was a habit of his to go off by himself into the wilderness, into the mountain somewhere to pray. And repeatedly, he withdrew himself from the cloud, even though great multitudes came to him for teaching, for healing. There were several occasions when he couldn't even eat and rest, yet he find the time to pray. Now, have you ever contemplated what experience would it be like for his disciples living with a sinless man? I mean, he had no sins to confess, no weakness to overcome. He had no need to ask him to increase faith or his love towards God. He never regretted the things he did. Yet, it was astounding to his disciples. He was always praying. And something they couldn't fully understand, why he took so much delight and pleasure and dependency in the act of prayer. Then it triggered them to ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. See, interestingly, the scripture never recorded the disciple came to Jesus and asked, Lord, teach us how to pray. Or Lord, how to uh, teach us how to do miracles, or teach us how to cast out demons. It was particularly recorded, however, was Lord, teach us to pray. And so this is how our Lord began with his prayer. He began with Father. Now notice, let us not pass in this title too quickly, too soon. Notice he's not saying our father, as he told his disciple in Matthew 6. He addressed God solely as father. Now, if you ask any born-again believers why Jesus does dress God as a father, they will say to you, uh, it's a no-brain question because he is the son of God, the second person of the, tr- uh, the Trinity. Of course, he's dressing God, the father, as father. Indeed. But you see, I'm not asking for information. I'm more interested in the affections behind that word, Father. Now, if you carefully trace the big events and moments in our law ministry, what you will find, he always turned to his Father in prayer. When selecting his 12 disciples, he spent the entire night in prayer because it was such important decisions to make. 
another one after feeding the 5,000 people. When, when the cloud wants exalt him as a king, what did he do? He withdrew himself to the mountain and prayed to his father because it was a great temptation to, to him bring his kingdom in a political manner. You witness him doing the same thing at the, the grave of the Lazarus in John 11. He prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane to his father in agony. And, he, and, and, and we have his, this text, the high priestly pray in the final hours with his disciple before the crucifixions. Brethren, we need to understand something. Yes, he is the son of God. And yes, he is the perfect man, yet he does nothing of himself. Our Lord himself stated in John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So when he addresses God as his father, it's an expression of affections, dependence, confidence. He looked to his father for guidance and the light. He looked to the father for power to hear, for power to raise people from the dead. He looked to his father to accomplish the very purpose for which he was sent. As God, he's co-equal with the father, all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, uncreated. As a man, he emptied himself, refrained from using the divine power as God. He lived as a man, being utterly dependent upon his father. Now, brethren, you know, we often ask one another, how is your walk with God? The response we typically receive is, I should pray more. I wish I, w I should spend more time with God. But let me ask you a following question. Do we not know why we pray less? Or oh, we do. We do. Because we believe we are self-sufficient. We may not say that, but our life, our daily living, testifying to it, we usually have many resources at the disposal, and depending upon God, this become our last resort when all else fails. Now, as we grow older, developing into the adulthood, we became more independent. And then at the same time, we carry the same mindset to approach our Heavenly Father. It is no wonder we experience little growth in our walk with God. We lack because we don't ask. We fail to recognize that our Heavenly Father is well pleased when we come to Him with total dependence. Now let me give you an example. I have a five-year-old son and three-year-old daughter. It was a Sunday last year. You know, I have to do something between the two services. And I had to leave my son and daughter um, at the church and I asked some of you to look after them. My son, being old, was fine with that. But when it came to my daughter, she didn't receive well. She cried so loud, and I have to take her into a private room and calm her down. I give her my reason, but she was so persistent, 
And this was what she said to me. Father, please don't leave Amy. Father, please don't go. But I said to you, you can have all the toys you want. I can, I can buy you ice cream. No, Father, please don't leave me. Now, I understand that she was upset, right? But if you were me, how would you react when your child approached you like that? I'm sure your response will be similar to mine. You will be delighted by this childlike dependence. And do you remember our Lord saying in the Sermon on the Mountain, Blessed are the pure heart, for they shall see God. And what is a pure heart, brother, sister? It is a heart that is unmixed, single-minded, pure like a child. And our Lord basically said, how blessed are you? If your heart are like a child of dependency, then you shall see God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God, the grace of God. You see, we are not self-sufficient, but God is. And he is all-sufficient. And his eyes are always upon the righteous. His ears are tentative to our cry. And most of you will be familiar with this uh, verse. Even in our prayer, we mentioned that. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Nor the door will be opened to you. And look to Christ. He has set a perfect example to follow. He has granted us this unique position in Him, providing a full access to our Father. Therefore, let us deepen our dependency on God. Let's renew our awareness of our unique positions in Christ. Now, we not only have access to God as a Father, who delights in our childlike dependency on Him, but also... We know our God absolutely sovereignty over all things. Now let me move to my second point, trust in the sovereignty of God. Let us revisit verse 1 again in John 17. He said, Father, the hour has come. You know, when we're speaking of time, time is always um, being a point of fascination of human beings. We look for the due day, due day of a baby birth. We celebrate the planned events around the particular days. We are curious about the day of the second coming of our Lord. Now, let us understand something. Time in itself has no significant meaning. It is just a merely a continual increasing numerical number. What makes a time or hour significant is an event that is associated with. And look back in history, there was a time when the floodgates of the sky were opened. The flood wept the entire human except Noah's family. There was a time when Moses led the people of Israel passing through the Red Sea. And also there was a time the same people witnessing the entire Pharaoh's army were drawn into the sea. There was a time when Queen Esther had to plan carefully in everything so that he, her, her people would not experience genocide in the hands of Haman. So when our Lord said, the hour has come, what was he referring to? Well, he was referring to that hour he would be nailed to the cross by the hands of the evil men. 
He was referring to the hour predetermined before the foundation of the earth, which was the very reason his coming into this world. He came to take away the sin of the world. And the only way he could take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist testified, was to be the Lamb of God, like an innocent lamb, lest to be slaughtered. And this is the hour our Lord speak of, the most crucial hour in history. It was the momentous hour since the beginning of the world and the hour to which all prophets were looking forward. Another detail regarding this hour, if you read the Gospel of John, there were several incidents where his enemy tried to capture him, tried to kill him. However, the scripture phrases it as his hour has not come. Now you can read it in your own, in John chapter 7, chapter 8. Then after chapter 12, we are told he starts informing his disciple, the hour has come. You see, our Lord never takes things by surprise. He's in control in everything. Like Augustine said, time did not force Christ to die, but Christ chose a time to die. Another interesting thing that regarding this hour, as we looking our Lord coming to this hour, on the other hand, the evil forces are also preparing to this very hour. How do we know? In Luke 22, 53, our Lord mentioned something like this. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour the power of the darkness. Now, what it does mean? What is meant by this is your hour, the power of your darkness? Now, clearly, it suggests that it was a spiritual war at a display. And this was a spiritual war far more real than any war in the human history. You see, these wars start at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Satan, a murder from the beginning tempted Adam, causing all mankind is born in the state of sin and misery. And after sin entered into the world, the people on earth become terribly wicked in their heart. God has to start it all over by wiping the entire human beings except the one family. Even God's own chosen nations, Israel, fell short and rebel against God due to the sin and the power of Satan. And Satan knows so well, he wants to dismantle God's divine works. As the time goes along, the battle intensifies. When the Son of God arrives in the world, Satan influenced the King Herod persuade him to destroy the infant Christ. He used the religious leaders to, to kill him. Satan himself tempted Christ in the wilderness just as he had with Adam. And now Satan and his entire army were being marching for this hour when the Son of God was going to give his life as a ransom for many. In one sense, our Lord mentioned it is the power of the darkness since we truly witness the pure evil, the essence of sin, we see a righteous man was judged. 
as Peter proclaimed on the day of the Pentecost, this man performed signs and wonders which God performed through him, was nailed to the cross by the hands of the godless man. At the same time, it is time which was predetermined for knowledge of God to defeat evil, to defeat sin and death, to set the captive free from the chains of sin. What an hour. And without this hour, the world will be under the wrath of God. We would be doomed. If were there any other way God could save us, then there was one need sent his son to die. Because there's no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it's easy for us to discuss this hour, you know, the power of the darkness, the sovereignty of God, especially since we know how the story ended. It costs us nothing. However, it's another thing for us to stop and ask, can I trust the sovereignty of God when my life seems so dark, when my try is so big and, and weighty? Now, brother, sister, the answer is yes, of course. Let me quote what was written in 6089 London Baptist Confession. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. Without reference to anything outside of him, he did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Let me quote with even a higher authority from the scriptures, Romans 8, 30. He predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Brother, sister, let us take comfort with this verse, we are part of his plan. We are transforming from images to image into the likeness of Christ, and we are on the path of glorification. Let us not lose heart when facing trial and difficulties. Instead, let us go to him in prayer and purposefully remind ourselves the sovereignty of God. Now, brother, sister, I just want to say something as your brother in Christ. I would hate to merely provide you just a just bunch of information and tell you to trust the sovereignty of God without even explaining to you how you're going to do that, especially when you come to prayer. You know, I firmly hold to the doctrines of elections limited atonement, etc. I love discussing theology, love to study about it. However, for a long time, when it comes to pray, I'm not sure if I can honestly say I enjoy the sovereignty of God. It's a challenge when praying the salvation of my loved one with the back of my, my mind question if they are the elect. Similarly, when praying for those people are, are, have serious illness among us. I pray God for the healing. But the back of my mind asks, what if in God's sovereignty choose not to hear? And, and there are many examples like that. I, I know the ultimate root issue 
is my unbelief. Then how do I pray to God in faith? How do I pray for the loved one who wants nothing to do with God? How do I pray for the renewal of my heart and mind when my heart is cold and my, my, my affection is numb? Until this verse comes alive in my mind. Please turn to your Bible to Heb Hebrew chapter 11 verse, uh, verse 6 and keep your finger in John, 11, uh, John 17. We're going to come back in a moment. But now turn to your Bible to Hebrew Chapter 11, verse 6. Let me read it to you. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, according to that verse, you have to do two things. First of all, to believe that he is. Do you believe that he is? Do you believe he can save your wife, your husband, your children, your family members? Do you believe he can hear your sickness? Do you believe he works all things for good for those who love him? Then do the second thing in that verse, which is to seek him. Listen, brothers, sisters. We often analyze the situations we are in. We categorize the, the difficulty of things in degree. And we, when we see things that are beyond our understanding, beyond our strengths, then we tend to approach God in a little face. But according to that verse, I'm so convinced that God always answers our prayer. Now you may come to me and say, I, I prayed my brother, the other day. But he still has sleeping issues. <clears throat> I pray for a sister in the church, but she seems to suffer even more. How can you say God always answers our prayer? Oh, brother, God always answers our prayer. And you read the text. The text said, For he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Brother, sister, in our privileged position in Christ, we can just come to him, express our desire to him as our father. And please listen to me very carefully what I'm about to say. Even if in his sovereign will, choose to not to do the things you and I specifically ask for, but he will honor the desire of our hearts. For he is the rewarder of those who seek him. He will reward you as you seek him in everything. And I believe God will do something beyond what we ask and think. And I know some works will be done in the heavenly realm. He will answer our prayer in a way, something that is far more important than we ask and think. That is, you and I, are transforming into the image of Christ from glory to glory. You and I will cultivate the character of Christ. And to you, young men, this is for you. Some of you want to get married. Great. But don't you know 
God do not know you have that desire? But do you believe he will provide a perfect wife for you, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh? Then what you need to do is to seek him first. Pray for the purity of yourself and pray for the purity of your future wife. Even you haven't met her, even you don't know her name. Stop wandering around, hunting every girl that you encountered. Stop fulfilling your sexual lust by the means of impurity. You need to stop it. Repent and believe that he is and seek him. He is the rewarder of those who seek him. In church, let us pray for the sickness of our brothers and sisters. Let us pray for the unsaved family members. Let us pray for one another to continue our fervent love, passion to Christ. Pray each one of us will preserve to the end. You know, intercession is hard. It can be weary. It's on the spiritual battlefield. But remember this. When you need encouragement to continue to make intercessions to the people of God, remember this. He will honor the desires of our heart, for he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And we don't need to come to him with our systematic theology at hand. We don't need to come with a sick commentary. We can, but we don't have to. Remember, it's relational. We can simply come to him with the promise of God written in the book and the desire of our heart and seek him, even though he doesn't answer the specific thing we asked for. That's fine. And you remind yourself, he is faithful. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. Oh, brothers, do you see how it changes the way we pray? I don't need to know everything. I don't need to know the result of my prayer. I come to him like a child and gaze upon him, for he knows everything. And he just gave me so much comfort and peace because I simply rest upon the sovereignty of God and I can wrestle with him and I put my total dependence on him. Amen? Now let me move to my final point behold the glory of God in the plan of salvation oh brother sister we need to hear the gospel the plan of our salvation if we aim for a vigorous spiritual life we must meditate on the glory in the plan of our salvation and what I mentioned in my introduction you know many dissatisfactions disappointment, unhappiness, and anxious in our Christian life is when we stop meditating on how glorious the gospel is. We are too interested in our own state, our own benefits, engaging too many introspections towards ourselves, and this is the issues of our life. And I'm convinced to address this issue in our life only antidote to our all problem is to behold the glory of God. I remember a quote from a Scottish pastor. For every look of yourself, take ten look at Christ. 
for he is altogether lovely. Now our Lord knows that why he, he, he definitely knows that. That's why he prayed, Father, glorify your Son, so the Son may glorify you. And here he is, just before the cross, the hour has come. He knows something about the agony and knows something about the sweet joy of the Gethsemane. He pleads with his Father to glorify him, to carry him through the mighty work he came to do. He asked to give him everything that he needs to do in order to display the beauty, the glory of God in the matter of salvation. So how then does the gospel of Jesus Christ manifest in the glory of God in a way that nothing else manifests? It does so, first of all, revealing the character of God. God is holy, and that's his essence. When the Bible speaks of the holiness of God, it goes beyond his moral perfection. He speaks of his uniqueness, separate from all else. Now imagine this. If you put the holy angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, together with the saints, the wicked men, the animal, the worms, the detestable creatures, guess where they belong? They fall under the one category as creatures. But God himself is another category, the uncreated one. And the scripture tells a shocking reality when in speaking of the God's holiness. Job 15, 15. Behold, he, that's God, puts no trust in his holy one, and the heaven are not pure in his sight. And this ought to make us think how unique this God is. He is separated from all else. Holy angels do not have sin. Heaven do not have sin. Yet the scripture tells us that even these things are not pure in God's sight. Why? Because he possessed the solitary glory of the being, the only uncreated one. Thus, all else fall beneath the dignity of the holy God. And if that is how God view holy angels, the sinless creatures, will this whole God overlook sins, ignore sin that is detestable, abominable to him? Well, the answer is obvious, no. He cannot and will not leave the sin unpunished. And that is our problem. For all have seen for short of the glory of God. But thank God, he doesn't stop at that. For the next thing he does is to reveal the love of God. Now I have to say this. This aspect of God's characters is often misunderstood. I'm, I'm not talking about the people outside of the church because the word can have all sorts of definition of the love of God. But I'm talking about within the church, especially among the reformed churches. You know, we sing songs like, the wrath of God was satisfied, which is absolutely biblical. It speaks of the just of God. But that also makes us think God is being opposed, being upset us because our sin, our singing action, our singing mind. We tend to think we need to do something to appease him. 
And we think he is a far distance in his eternal glory and righteousness, who is not easy to approach. And we have to make a great effort in order to get him to look on us in favor. And brothers and sisters, this view is fallacy. The love of God towards you, brothers and sisters, it cannot be altered by anything. And you be ready for this? He loves you because he loves you. John 17 verse 2, Our Lord himself said, Even as you give him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now please notice, it does not say Christ should give eternal life to all flesh. No, he said only to those the Father have given him. God the Father has given his Son the power over all flesh without constraint, without limits. He's also the one has given his Son a special group of people to enjoy the blessing of the salvation and eternal life. Even before the creation of the word, in the eternal council, God the Father gave these particular people to his son and said, save these people for me because I love them. Because I love them. Oh, God the Father love us and so does God the Son. When God the Father assigned this weighty task to his son, to which the son replied in verse 4, I glorify you on earth having accomplished the work that which you have given me to do. So how exactly did he accomplish the Father's work? He was going to face the impending hour alone. He was about to die. He was going to face the judgment from God, which he didn't, which he didn't deserve. The wrath of God was going to pour on him. His heart was very troubled because the weight of the word sin he had to bear. Oh, my brother, it was a mighty sin, transcending our thoughts. For him to leave the glory he had with the Father, the eternal Son of God, to lie in the womb of a woman and take the human nature. And all his trial and difficulties are beyond our grasp and understanding in this world. Now, if there's a way to take the sin of this word, then God will not send his son to the earth. If the sinless angel combined are able to save the sins of the word, then our Lord will not say he is the only way. The author of the Hebrews give, give us this great picture of our Lord being the high priest, offering himself to us. So in Hebrew 5, we learn that in his flesh, he offered our both prayers and a supplication with a loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Yet we are also told his prayer was answered. Now if our Lord prayed in anguish at the garden of Gethsemane, asking for the cup to pass away from him, then how were we told God heard his prayer? The only answer is his prey was not to escape the Father's will, but to accept it. When our Lord said, Father, 
Glorify your son, the son may glorify you. He was praying to God, strengthen me, enable me to accomplish these weighty tasks to prove the word, I am the son of God. And he cried, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No one took the life away from him. He laid down his life by his own will and he had authority to take it back. Think about of his resurrection, the power of God, the glory of God was revealed through the resurrected body. Consider his ascension. He forever took the human nature with him and now sitting at the right hand of God in glory until all his enemy shall be made his footstool. Our Lord, from the highest realm of the glory to the cross of the deepest woe to Hades, then back again, ascend to heaven with infinite glory. Why did he do all this? Let me summarize for you. Because he loves you. He loves you and me so we may behold the glory of God. You know, sometimes we laugh when we hear people say, God has a wonderful plan for you, right? We laugh because there are people in the charismatic movement believe something that God's never promised in the scriptures. And we are too scared to say it. But listen, brethren, God has a wonderful plan for you. Before the foundation of the earth, he has a plan for you. He has your name in his mind. He's interested in you. When he conceived the amazing redemption plan, including incarnation, cross, resurrection, ascension, and he had your name in his mind. Well, if this is not enough for you, then I'm in despair as a preacher. But if this moves you, warms your heart, takes it, meditate upon it, so that your long last passion for the glory of God might be rekindled. You were no longer indecisive, but run the race with determinations and preserve to the end. Plus, you know, we are not like Christians in the Pilgrim Progress. He walked his journeys most of the time alone, but we have one another. We are not alone. We run the race together. Amen? And to my unbelieving friends and families, don't play games with devil. Don't sell your soul to him. He is a father of liars, seeking only to destroy and drag you down to hell. Plus, you are powerless when you're going to face the death alone. Nothing will comfort you when you're on the deathbed. Your memory will go away. Your strength will go away. And please remember, your life is just like a vapor. But while you are still have breath on earth, there's a hope for you. Find Christ. Seek him while he may be found. Find it in peace in Christ. Find your love in Christ so you can have all these privileges that I was just speaking about as sons and daughters, co-heirs, glory after glory and eternal life all you need to do is to believe in christ and that's all you need to do amen 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, we thank you. The wonderful plan of salvation, Lord. Certainly, we don't deserve one bit. If it's the only thing that we contribute our salvation, it is our sin. But it's your name. It is your, for your name's sake, you sent your son to die and went through all these things. And you pray for us. You're interceding for us. You preserve us to the end. It's a crown of glory awaits for us. And we know that. So Lord, in this short life, let us be vigorous. Let us be, be have the full assurance. Let us study the Bible and obtain the rare jewel of the assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.